Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. On this podcast, I talk with a range of conservationists every single week, from scientists, students, creatives, innovators, and everyone in between. I hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story, educate, collaborate, and ultimately inspire action. So if you want to join our conservation tribe, then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to the Conservation Tribe. Today we are joined by a very special guest, Leif Cox, a world-renowned orangutan expert with over 30 years experience working with orangutans. He's the founder and president of the Orangutan Project, the world's foremost orangutan conservation not-for-profit. He's an author, he's a speaker, and has also recently been awarded one of Australia's highest honours, the Medal of the Order of Australia for Services to Species Conservation. That's just to name a couple of the achievements. So Leif, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on the show. Most welcome, Blaine. It's great to be here. It's a bit of an understatement to say that your conservation resume is pretty bloody impressive. (laughs) You've done a lot of amazing work throughout the years. And for someone like me, who's just kind of starting at the beginning of my conservation journey, I'm pretty intrigued as to what your background story looked like. So can you please speak to that and explain how your conservation journey started? and perhaps expand on a couple of key events in your life that sparked this fascination with the natural world? Mm-hmm. I think I always had an innate um, love of the natural world. And although I was brought up in probably the most overpopulated metropolis in the world, Hong Kong, yeah. I, I basically kept a, a menagerie in my room <laughs> of various animals and, and, and bits of nature, I guess. And um, my main journey started when I was working 15 orangutans and discovered that they're self-aware persons and didn't belong in captivity and they they only could survive and thrive in their own culture and communities in, in the wild and of course quickly discovered that they've been driven to extinction. So that started my journey um, to save the orangutan as well as obviously save the rainforest, save our planet and many other things such as assisting all the other wildlife and the indigenous communities that share the forest. So these are kind of some experiences that you've had that have generally sparked this fascination. But what are some specific moments that inspired you to start the Orangutan Project? And what is your mission and vision for the project? Yeah. I mean, again, it was the love and compassion, which is ultimately the the foundation of the Orangutan Project and the other organizations that I run. Our vision for the orangutans is that one day all orangutans will live in a wild, in viable populations and secure habitat. And our, our mission is to secure five to eight viable ecosystems of the right type, shape and size of forest that will allow the orangutan, the other wildlife, indigenous communities to get through this extinction crisis. And so we can pass on to future generations a recoverable environment not only for wildlife, orangutans and biodiversity, but for the future economy of our grandchildren. And so unfortunately, we only got another about 10 years to do this. And I think with the global crisis, with climate change, scientists are also saying, again, we've got 10 years to turn this around. And so that means no retirement, no rest. We've got 10 years to do enough that we can hand over to future generations at least a recoverable planet and recoverable ecosystems. Um, before it's too late. Yeah, so that 10-year 10, 10 time frame that you're referring to, is that the climate, the general kind of climate emergency that we're 
all facing or is this a time frame that's more specific to the orangutans? It's both and it's obviously linked why those two time frames are, are both relevant. At least let's say for the orangutans, if we don't say these viable ecosystems, you know, so you've got to have the right type, shape and size of forest for ecosystems to survive. After that, there will be rainforest, but it will be unviable and eventually disappear. We, we may have orangutans, but they won't be in viable populations. So in other words, you still have orangutans, you still have forests, but those ecosystems and those populations will no longer be sustainable. So it eventually collapse. So similarly, you know, in, in in the global level, um, you, you're seeing the same thing. You say, okay, yeah, will there be a world in 10 years? Yes, but will will it be recoverable? It may not be so because we, we've gone too far. And we're seeing this kind of um, escalation. I mean, for example, the destruction of the rainforest causes more global warming than all the transport systems in the world combined, all the trains, planes, automobiles, cars and boats. And that is causing, obviously, global warming. And now what we're seeing global warming is happening is we're having major droughts in the forest, which is destroying the productivity. We're seeing major fires, which is further destroying the rainforest and other areas. And then we're also seeing the megafauna, such as the orangutans and, and other wildlife, disappearing because they can't find enough food. And they're the main seed dispersers for many species. And so the carbon stocks are the remaining less full forests is a lot less. Yeah. And so you see this, this spiral makes sense. They all interact with each other um, to send us down, I guess, the funnel of, of extinction. And so, so they, it's, it's a far more interactive process than most people realize. Yeah, all these challenges aren't, I guess, challenges in isolation. They are all interlinked. And when you talk about climate change, that obviously has global implications. And, you know, drought, for example, that then in turn affects orangutans and other people or other species. Sorry, I just refer to animals as people. I do that sometimes. Um, affects these species. And then that has a ripple on effect. Yeah, so it's important for people to consider this complex and interlinked challenge. These things aren't isolated problems. They are all interrelated. Exactly. And in my book, Finding Our Humanity, I talk about how we have a tribal brain. So I, without spiritual evolution, to want for a better term, our brains are set on the tribal level. We care about our tribe, however we define that, our community, religion, political party, or, or whatnot. But however, because of our ability to make you know, large changes over the globe. The solutions and our capacity to care about others need to expand beyond that. And so we, our intuition doesn't make sense, is to fall back into, I guess, the politics that we see, you know, party lines, one about the immediate future, what about our own tribe? However, that will destroy us. It worked for thousands, hundreds and thousands of years when we had low technology living on a tribal level. But that, that, that unfortunate inability to expand the, our consciousness beyond the tribal mind is a main challenge that we have to overcome. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Um, like you can see the implications of that just by looking at the news and by going on social media. It seems to be there's a divide in a lot of these topics that we talk about. And it seems like from a general stance, it's like left versus mm -hmm. right. And these conversations are approached like everyone's very tribal and if they're on the mm -hmm. tribe of the left or the tribe of the right, 
you go into this conversation not really to take on any better information. It's like it's me against you, essentially. And there is this clash and there is this divide, which isn't conducive to constructive conversation and change, to be frank. Mm. No, exactly. And all communication is, is first about love and empathy. One is you listen to somebody, truly listen to them. And, and two is if you listen to somebody, does make sense, and have empathy, they're more likely to listen to your, your ideas. And, and so this is one of the reasons that conservation was so ineffective, because people go into it trying to reform the world without reforming themselves. And therefore, they just get into this us against them dialogue. Does that make sense? And in fact, and they actually end up destroying the work that we're trying to achieve. The tribal minds are really effective if you want to go into business and make short-term profit, because that's what it's made to do. You form a tribe in your company, you fight other people or other blokes in the other tribe, you know, and you have a short-term five-year plan and you achieve it. But it's very destructive outside of that tribal circle that you create. Where the conservation, that tribal mind destroys what we're trying to achieve because what we're trying to achieve is a higher ideal which includes bringing into the field of inclusiveness not only all other people um, but all other persons such as orangutans and elephants and all other beings such as animals and unless we have the capacity to do that we end up in the long run being very ineffective yeah and like i think there are some benefits to being in a tribe for example i think the challenge is or the problem arises when you are resistant to collaborate and work with other tribes or other people with differing points of view. So I, I don't think it's a matter of like, let's go from 100% tribal mentality to a zero. It's kind of finding that happy medium in between there somewhere and just learning how to collaborate and work with other tribes, aka people with differing points of views and different cultures and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I would say at one level, we have to collectivize. Yes. You know, as individuals, you know, we've been sold this part, oh, we act in, as individuals, you know, go palm all free or, or whatnot. Um, we're going to achieve anything. Well, we're not really. Um, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but we're not going to achieve anything. If you want a bit of money, you get a job. If you want a lot of money, you collectivize capital into a company. If you want a, a small pay rise, you may ask your boss. If you want really good working conditions in the pay rise, you collectivize into a union. Similarly with conservation, individuals are always ineffectual. We're successful as a species because we, we have the ability to collectivize into organizations. And so the ability to collectivize is our main achievement. And so you talked about some of my achievements at the beginning of the podcast, but my main achievement is the ability to collectivize and work well with others. However, the, the vision doesn't make sense and the empathy and love of the leader for that tribe to be effective has got to go beyond the tribe. Yeah. Look at all the great men. If you look at Martin Luther King's speeches, he doesn't talk about black rights. He talks about the rights of all human beings. You know, you look at Mahatma Gandhi, you know, he, he doesn't talk about India being independent, you know, against the English. In fact, he's very sympathetic to the English and mm -hmm. their plight and stopped the independence movement during World War II because he thought it was not right to drive the independence movement when they were in a, a major conflict. He had compassion and love, which extended beyond his duties to his, his tribe, you know, and that allowed him to make effective, meaningful change. And India, you know, despite all its problems, is 
the largest effective democracy that we know today. And, you know, and that can only be achieved through love and compassion. And of course, obviously, his, his love and compassion for the, for the Muslim people, where he, he literally said, I'm going to starve myself to death unless you, yes. you stop persecuting and looking after the Muslim minority within India. And it's only that level of, of leadership if, of your tribe beyond the tribal mind that I, I, I think we can be effective in this world. And I think having those conversations at that base level, that ground zero, these, these core foundational values that you personally live by and also your community, your family or your tribe, these are really important. And you mentioned compassion, love, kindness, empathy. That's where the conversation really needs to be around because you think of those topics and you may not necessarily think automatically saving orangutans. But when you break it down, if we as human beings can become more empathetic, more compassionate, more kind, more loving, conservation, protecting animals and ecosystems and all that kind of stuff is a byproduct of that change in mentality. Yeah, I, I would couch it a slightly different way. The, the, your out, outgoing expression is the expression of your internal world. You could pretend to be a great person, great conservationist, compassionate person, but if you're unhappy inside, it will come out. You know, if you're in pain, doesn't make things are suffering, you snap, you know, mm. you're ill-tempered, and you can't help it. You naturally will create misery in, in the world no matter what your good intentions because that you can hide it for a while, but you, you're in a need for name, fame, you know, money, power. Those toys to support your sense of self, lack of self-worth will come out. Alternatively, if you spend the time to find that love and joy, you know, within yourself, that, that will naturally have to express itself. So you can't help it. So the true conservation is, is, is you know, asking why they do it and how they keep going. The answer is they can't do anything else. They have this love and compassion and they have to express it in the most intelligent way they know, whether that's through orangutans, which then save the forest, save the indigenous communities, save Indonesia's future economy, save planet from global warming. These, these are the natural expression of love through your particular talents and needs. And that, that has a universal effect. Yeah. Hate shrinks down. Love, no matter how you express it, will expand even beyond the, the mission of your organizations and the things that you create. So to add to that then, it sounds to me as though you're saying that self-awareness is a pretty crucial component of this because that's something mm -hmm. that I very strongly believe in is trying to develop some level of self-awareness. And that means having an understanding of what you're good at, what you're not good at, your passions, your interests, having this base understanding of of who you are can then inform these other things that you're referring to. Exactly. I'm not, what I'm saying is to reform the world first, you have to reform yourself. Yeah. I'm not saying before you start on a journey to help others that you have to sit in Himalayas for 20 years. <laughs> However, while you start on that journey, you, you've got to start reforming yourself. Definitely. And the other thing I would say is it may be difficult to find happiness within oneself, but it's impossible to find it outside of oneself. If you can find that happiness and joy within yourself, you're then free. You're no longer needing outside support for your happiness. And therefore, you can make really good decisions, not clouded by needs for short-term external um, um, gains.
And that short-term happiness is probably a trap. Like intrinsic happiness is, is what we should be seeking, but you can have the illusion of happiness in the short term coming from external factors. And that feels good in the moment, obviously, but to try and, it's not a sustainable system to follow if you're trying to be happy for the long term. Like it needs to be, it needs to come from within. In the seed of every happy moment is the, is the, is despair. In every moment of despair, there's a seed of happiness. So if you're looking for external support, you're in this endless cycle of happiness and despair. If you find the joy and love within yourself is constant. The lines from a poem that I often quote is, in vain the endless seasons roll for the one who bears an internal summer in the soul. So, you know, people say, oh, you got an award. Don't you feel good? Oh, yeah, I feel good, but not a big deal. They're the, they're the problem. You, you're facing another great tragedy, you know, saving the rank tank, another safe backpack. You must be devastated. Oh, look, it's, it's bad, but I can get through it. And that gives you the fortitude to go on because so many um, conservationists or people who are trying to do, they burn out. Yep. They, be, they become drunks. They, they become embittered. They have to retire. And conservation, and that is what I call a marathon with hurdles. You know, we can only achieve things, doesn't make sense, if we can just stick at it for years and years and years to achieve the aim. And therefore, we need to create um, within ourselves the environment which allows that to happen. So true, so true. I'm all about that. Um, Yeah, approaching conservation from a marathon versus a sprint makes a lot of sense Mm -hmm. to me. But the challenge is conditioning your body and your mind to be able to run that marathon. Because mm-hmm. even in the physical world, that takes a lot of training. Um, so mm-hmm. the same would apply to, to I guess, conservation if you're approaching it from a marathon perspective. Um, I like how this conversation has gone very philosophical. <laughs> this is this is where this is where my brain naturally goes. So I'm I'm glad you're on the same wavelength. Um, but we'll revert back to some orangutan related stuff now. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned in your book, orangutans, uh, my cousins, my friends that you think of the Rangtan project like being a holistic doctor that seeks to address the root of the problem. So with respect to Rangtan conservation, what do you believe is the root of the problem and what are some examples or symptoms that uh, manifest from that? Yeah, yeah, that's a very good question because the, the issue is is often you know, you p- people will come in with a very simplistic viewpoint and it's often based on their own skills and interests. So they might say the key to conservation is education, you know, and, you know, and just do education. Or the key, if you're an action man, you go, the key to conservation is wildlife ranges in the field patrolling. Or, you know, or, you know, or the key to conservation is, you know, government deals, you know, if you're kind of a bureaucrat. And so it's, it's like going to your doctor with a different ailment and it gives you the same prescription, the same dosage every time realize he's a quack and so what you have to do is is you look at each ecosystem that we're trying to save and we diagnose the disease and we prescribe the prescription in the right dosage and the right type of medicine to achieve that so so you know it could be ranges it could be changing manuscript it could be community development it could be education you know uh, it could be replanting it, you know um, there's a whole variety of things that need to go into it and so, again, it's about always realizing, unfortunately, it's bad for marketing. Simplistic solutions to a complex world don't really achieve anything. 
you know, and of course, politicians want to give you a simplistic answer because it goes to our tribal brain. We just want simplistic answer. This is going to solve our problem. But of course, they're always selling you a pup. It's always not true. And so you, you have to go beyond that and, and you know, that makes sense and see the complexity of the world, you know, and, and apply the solutions in a multifaceted way. So that's basically our, our strategy. You know, let let analyze properly the problem and prescribe the, the conservation um, rather than, you know, what happens is people will join, become part of an organization and they'll say, support my organization, not the guy down the road doing that ecosystem because we're better and we're wonderful and he's, he's not a good person. Again, it's destructive. Or they'll say, look, we're into you know education, you know, and education is the most important thing, you know. So you've got to give to us. Don't give it to the guy who's who's, who's funding ranges because you know this is the way to achieve it. Ranges are not really the solution, and that's where you get this kind of you know division and you know and and um, um, increase ineffectiveness of conservation by not understanding the big picture and also for organisations not working together. And so what we would do, for example. If we look in the ecosystem we're trying to save, we don't go in and say, well, we're doing this because we think that's really cool and that's what we think is important. We go, okay, this is the ecosystem. Who are the players we can use their current skills and infrastructure and knowledge to work with and achieve the aim? And so we, we work together in a holistic way. So you don't double up and start replicating things or competing things. And that makes the conservation very effective. And, you know, and very cost effective in a way to, to achieve the aim. Because ultimately, you know, for example, with the orangutan project, as an example, my ultimate vision for the orangutan project, if I had, you know, the best day of my life, you know, after my life mission would be if, if I could just close the orangutan project. Because, hey, it's not needed anymore. You know, we've achieved the objective, all the orangutans live in secure habitat and viable populations in the world. Although obviously 90% of my job is, you know, just keeping the orangutan project going and fixing the change. But ultimately it needs to go because the world I want to create goes beyond that. Yeah, I heard you say that in a, a YouTube video and it's a great way to look at it because it's ironic in a lot of ways. The objective, the ultimate goal for your project is to close the project or get to reach to a point where your project is no longer needed or relevant. It's like, it's kind of like a full circle like birth and death of the exactly. project is the goal. And we see this, for example, let's say in politics, they will put the party's interest before the country's interest with a tribal mind and they put their own interest before the party's interest. Yeah. You see that every politician seems to be like that. So similarly, I put the, the orangutan project's interest before my own personal interest. Yeah. But also, I put the interest of conservation and the welfare of the animals before the interest of the orangutan project. Otherwise, you, as we discussed earlier, you get into this destructive cycle, yeah? not only that you don't achieve the outcomes you want. So almost to achieve your outcomes, you have to go beyond it yeah, in order to be effective. Yeah, and I like how the thing you mentioned before about it's not appealing marketing wise to market a, I guess, a simple problem or a simple solution, but that's quite dangerous because obviously conservation is intrinsically complex and it's dangerous to try and deduce a complex thing 
to simple things um, because that's just not Mm -hmm. what it is. But the other add-on to that is from simple beginnings, complexity can arise from that. So they're talking about the empathy and the kindness, love. These are pretty simple concepts. Um, Mm -hmm. But if we practice that at a global scale, there's so much complexity, beautiful complexity that can Mm -hmm. come from that. So Mm -hmm. yeah, simplicity can evolve into complexity. And you just look at evolution, like that's obviously an example of that. Um, from a conservation strategy point of view, what are the key areas that the orangutan project cover to address some of the threats facing orangutans and their habitat? Yeah, as mentioned before, it's these key ecosystems that we're trying to save um, before it's too late. And to do that, we have ranges that we fund to go in. We have community development. Um, we have community education. We um, you know, change the land use status of the land from you know, unprotected to protected. And even, for example, uh, one of the areas, um, we feed the children um, and we, we fund their schooling um, because we have to work with Indigenous communities and, the, and our ends, you know, for the first understanding that we're on the same page is we can both agree we love their children. And when the children are, are fed and educated, then we now we have a, a level of empathy and connection that then we can discuss how we're going to manage this ecosystem for mutual benefit of the wildlife and themselves. And the great thing is, these are all win-win solutions. It doesn't have to be wildlife versus the environment or the economy, you know, um, versus ecosystems. They're, in the long term, the win-win solution is to preserve these intact ecosystems. You know, um, um, for everybody. The only thing we can't give a win-win to are the big multinationals who are looking to have income, long-term sustainable income reduced to a five-year business plan. And they want to have income which goes to the majority and all the people in the communities um, reduced and taken off overseas. Yeah, And that short-term greed, um, that we can't help them with because that kind of thinking is, is destroying the planet. But you know, for, for everybody, we can certainly make a greater planet. Yeah. But also we have to be mindful, and it's no conflict here, because people think, oh, do you save the animals and run? But it's both the same job in the conflict. We have to recognize that orangutans are self-aware persons, the most intelligent person on the planet next to human beings. And each individual is worthy of it, of love and compassion and to be saved, an opportunity to live wild and free in its own society. And so we do a lot of work, you know, supporting the, the rescue, rehabilitation and, and the release of orangutans. Mm-hmm. And more and more, as the population declines, each individual is so important genetically for the survival of their species. You have to care, does it make sense? So about the individuals. So for example, if you have a society where individual is taken too much, maybe I'll put it this way, government, good government is about bouncing the rights of the individuals versus the right society. If you go too much to the rights of individuals, you get fascism. You know, you get a few individuals benefiting and exploiting the others. If you go too far the other way, and we say society only matters and individual doesn't, you get communism, you know, and that suppresses and destroys people. So good government bounces those two things, the rights of the individual and, and, the, and the rights of society. Um, and good conservation is the same. You can't go too far the other way because you have some conservation that say, don't worry about saving orangutans and the individual elephants. You know, it's all about the trees, you know. 
um, and they've got it wrong. <laughs> and you've got some conservationists to say, look, it's all about saving that baby orangutan. You know, I don't want to know about global warming, saying frost. Again, they've got it wrong. It's a balance of those two things which allow maximum effect. And the thing that you're talking about with win-win, you know, win for the animals or the ecosystem and win for the local communities. One thing that I'm quite interested in is, you know, a lot of the threats that are coming around through deforestation are occurring because of these businesses, these these large-scale businesses. And so hopefully I'd like to see in the future, I think there's a possibility to do business in a way that's good for the environment, good for people and good for profit. Like there is a way to harmonize those three things into one that's is beneficial for pretty much everyone involved. That's not the model that we're seeing at the moment. We are seeing trend, it's trending it seems like for smaller scale businesses um, that are more conscious about the environment, which is great. But yeah, one day I'd love to see that reach kind of at a global large scale because when we get to that point, I feel like that's when a lot of progress will be made. Yeah, like what are your thoughts on that? I, I agree. It's not about um, creating an impoverished world to save the environment. It's far from it. You're going to create a, a highly profitable world. You, know, you need a sound, safe environment in order to good, do good business and, and have people in, in affluence. And you see a lot of companies, you know, divesting, for example, from fossil fuels, you know, investing in renewables and seeing the job opportunity, seeing the profit of, and what they call it is the fifth industrial revolution, you know. And so it's a bit like these old dinosaurs from the third industrial revolution. We have investment in the old fossil fuel. They're paying off our politicians in order to keep the status quo so they don't lose all the money from their investments. But it's just like if, if, this, is a, this is a free market. If you're stupid enough to invest in the old technology, you know, when we're going through an, an industrial revolution, you're going to have to probably lose. The smart ones, you know, are already investing into the next, this current industrial revolution. And they're going to be profitable. They're going to be the people employing people in the future and driving our economies. However, our politicians all around the world seems to be you know, in the pockets of a few dinosaurs, you know, who are too mm. stupid to find their way to the nearest tar pit, pun, pun intended. <laughs> you know, we, we're destroying our planet for it. But those dinosaurs have a lot of cash and money talks mm. in those, those situations. One thing I'm interested in is palm oil. Palm oil is, is very topical at the moment. And according to the IUCN, there are 193 threatened species that have palm oil listed as one of their main threats. If we want to mm. mitigate that threat, do you think we should boycott palm oil completely? Is it a matter of kind of going towards more sustainable palm oil? Or is the solution just far more complex and nuanced than that? It, yeah, it's the latter, far more complex. In fact, you can, if you drive the best palm oil campaign and go sustainable palm oil, whatever that means, because palm oil is a monoculture, and therefore science just tells us it's, it's unsustainable and, and we know they'll all collapse in 50, 60 years' time and leave a wasteland of environment and economy for those countries. So let's not worry about sustainable palm oil because People who say stand by palm oil don't understand what the word means. You know, it can be less destructive, mm -hmm. and that's probably a good thing. Let's say we go for banning palm oil or stopping you know, palm oil. Now, how many orangutans, how many trees do you would say? Probably I would put estimate about zero. 
The reason being is you're not understanding your situation. Let's say I'm a businessman, right, and I want to make some money. There's a bunch of trees over there in the forest. I will fund a politician for his campaign. He wins, and my reward is he'll give me access to the forest. And studies have shown, for example, in Indonesia, deforestation goes in with the election cycle. And this is not unique to Indonesia. You can see this in Australia. As in another example, the this, this same, this same thing happens. So please don't think I'm singling out Indonesian or Indonesian politicians as unique. This, is, this happens you know, all around the world. And then, okay, then I'll destroy the trees. Average concession, I'll make a million dollars. Good. Then some of them just walk away, the cowboys. You know, others would go, look, I'm a businessman. Now, what crop should I plant on it to make maximum short-term profit for myself? I'm not worried about the future. I don't live here. You know, I've bought my house on the Gold Coast already. You know, so, uh, yeah. so I'll plant palm oil. It's a pretty good investment. After three years, I'm going to make a million dollars a year off, this, you know, off the average concession. However, if you span palm oil, he's not going to say, oh, I'm not going to invest in any business on that land. He's going to go, I'm going to plant sugar palm. I'm going to plant rubber. I'm going to plant pulp paper. They're all equally profitable monocultures that come in place on that land. And so you could ban all the palm oil, but you're not addressing. The, the driver is, is greed, short-term greed. And unless you're, you're denying him all opportunities of short-term greed from exploiting that environment, he'll continue to do that. And so, again, this is why I call it the two wings of the bird. We need the, the compassion and love to care to make a change. But we have to intelligently apply that. Because indiscriminate charity causes more problems than the world creates. So we can have thousands of you know wonderful people going on a ban palm oil campaign, going palm oil free, which is not a bad thing. Making businesses less destructive and having personal integrity about how you live your life is a wonderful thing. But if you believe you're going to, you actually are going to affect meaningful change in the world beyond that, that's not going to really be the case. You have to collectivize and and you have to collectivize in a way that can intelligently address the issue at hand. Yeah. And another kind of interesting thing with palm oil is that it's a very efficient and productive crop. So like mm-hmm. when you compare it to other crops that produce oil, it's six to mm-hmm. 10 times more efficient. So if we assume that we will all use oil, we need oil on this planet, in a lot of ways, if we can manage these plantations effectively, it makes more sense to have palm oil than some other alternatives just based on the fact that it is a more efficient crop or am i missing mm. something there I, now why palm oil is so prized and it's such a good product to invest in is because you as you're saying it's very efficient For the same area you can get a lot more product because of the nature of the palm tree but that same thing makes it same thing it makes it that it five to six times more productive the same thing that makes it five to six times less sustainable because the nutrients and the micronutrients come from somewhere. It comes from the soil. And if you keep extracting that out, you're going to deplete the soil eventually. And that's why it plants. And if you extract it more efficiently and more quicker, you'll destroy the soil more quickly. And that's why we're working in rainforest communities now and actually delivering products to market where you can actually make just as much money per hectare per year from an intact rainforest. There's totally... Um, recycled and, and the soil is totally rejuvenated and so you don't have to destroy the environment for a good economy now what we discovered because we you know 
um, with this process, um, because we have to manage the budgets and the strategy for it, we can actually have models that extract more money per hectare per year from the rainforest using you know, things like jungle honey, rattan, bamboo, you know, a diverse economy. But these diverse sustainable economies from the ecosystem, they naturally favour that most of the money, let's say 80% of the money, goes to the local community. The exploitative monocultures, 80% of the money goes, it gets extracted outside to the, the, the billionaires yeah. outside of Indonesia in this example. And, and so it's, that's the issue is, you know, w- we can be sustainable and we can have viable, beautiful, you know, to make sense, sustainable economies. But the, the unfortunate trade-off for the greedy few is most of the money goes to everyone else. The majority of people get richer and they haven't got the ability to get rich quick. Yeah. And that's what they're, they're really fighting to hold, not that they're fighting to keep the economy going or for jobs, you know, which is, you know, you see here in Australia, we're going to destroy the planet through coal mining or logging old growth forests because we need jobs. It's not true. Yeah. It's, it, it, they need to retain a model where the majority of funds enrich the already wealthy, but we can have actually better economies. And make more money, yeah. But it, unfortunately, you know, for the uber wealthy, it will naturally be spread um, much more evenly over yeah. the community. Yeah, the point that you made about it being an efficient crop doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good thing for the planet. Like it's efficient at producing this oil, but it's also efficient at damaging the environment mm. that it's on. That's uh, something that I haven't really taken that angle before, which but it makes perfect sense. And a lot of one big trouble with palm oil plantations, not only obviously destruction, is all the villages lose all the water. They, they have droughts because they're so thirsty and they have to import water now. They can't, the wells dry up because of the palm oil. And because the rainforest is like this big sponge. So if you ever go in the rainforest like 30 years ago, the water flowed all year round. You know, so when it rained, the sponge created and, and some came out. And when it was drought, the sponge kept on releasing it. So you had this very regular water mm-hmm. supply. Now the villages have droughts, no water, and then they have a flood when it rains and wipes out the village. Yeah. You know? And so as well as obviously causing massive global warming to put a palm oil plantation, you destroy the local economy around it. You know, the, 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 the infrastructure that is required, the, the sound environment which is required for local people to prosper. Okay. From a, I guess, a consumer perspective though, uh, I think a lot of people at the moment you know, they're trying to be more conscious with the products that they buy in the supermarket. But you have these different camps of what they should be doing, mm-hmm. aka no palm oil, sustainable palm oil. Uh, what advice do you give to them, like from a practical, something that people can do on an everyday basis? I think that the, the we know, you know, holistically, the number one thing we can do as a consumer is become a vegan, you know, to help the planet. That's just the way it is, whether you like meat or not, you know, it's just the number one thing is. But it also links back to um, love and compassion. It's a lack of compassion for the billions of animals which we slaughter every year for the pleasure of the taste. And that's that's about one third of global warming there, you know. By having the compassion in you that you can't bear, you know, killing and eating animals for your pleasure when it's totally wholly unnecessary, then you... It extends out and you start saving the planet. So through compassion and love through ourselves, 
and then how we express it will naturally, as we're discussing, have far-reaching effects on the planet, far beyond if we don't consider love and compassion for living beings within that equation. So again, going back to address, identify what the root of the problem is and then apply the appropriate medicine, which in this case is you know, compassion, love and, and, and empathy and all these kinds of things, all these values. Um, there is a quote by Richard Dawkins that reads, we admit that we are like apes, but we seldom realize that we are apes. So this mm-hmm. to me suggests an inconsistency in how we perceive our orange cousins, our orangutans, but also animals in general. So do you mm-hmm. think that this psychological disconnect is like a fundamental barrier to achieve conservation at scale? It's, it certainly, certainly is. And we, but we're, the good news is we're seeing a slow expansion of empathy and inclusion over the years. An example I give is the American Declaration of Independence. And the people who wrote that were, you know, smart, educated, moral giants for their time. You know, there were some pretty, you know, good guys, you know, pretty smart guys. And when and they wrote in it, it's self-evident that all men are created equal. Self-evident meant they didn't have to explain it. It's just the way things is. But those same people kept slaves. And as more, more telling is those same people, they didn't see the persons who shared their beds and raised their children as being equal because women didn't get the right to vote in America to the 1920s. So they had a equality and compassion, but they had this block. They couldn't expand it beyond their skin color and beyond their, their sex. Um, and that doesn't mean that they weren't good people. You know, people destroying the planet, not necessarily bad people, but they just have this narrow viewpoint of, of inclusion, you know, which doesn't allow them to go beyond that. And we're seeing that breaking down, hopefully, with the sea orangutans, you know. And what, a lot of times I take people in the rainforest on my echo tours and they have this wonderful, unique experience. And they see the humanity, and in fact, a more noble form of humanity in the eyes of the orangutan. And suddenly, does it make sense? There's a circle of inclusion and personhood reaches beyond our species to orangutans, as an example. And that's no more profound than now, where we were seeing it absolutely absurd to think somebody just because they have black skin, you know, is will like them, but not the same as them. You know, we yes. would think those are absurd. And in the future, we will think the same thing absurd when we look at other persons who share plants, such as orangutans, chimpanzees, and elephants. Our job at the moment, while the evolution is occurring, is to make sure we save enough intact ecosystems and populations that they're at least around. When that change occurs. Yes. Perfect sense. Yeah, morality is on a continuum. So things that were considered moral 150 years ago, for example, slavery, is obviously mm-hmm. now considered immoral today. And I always mm-hmm. ask myself the question, what do we consider moral today that in 150 years time will be considered immoral? And the thing that you talked about yeah. with veganism, I think that mm-hmm. is exactly what's going to happen. Animal rights it will be the thing that falls into that category. In my opinion, in 150 years time, we'll, we're going to look back at today and we'll, we won't believe the things, how we're treating the animals that we are currently treating them. That's, I think that's what will happen. And I think I'm probably quoting Martin Luther King badly, but he says that the curve to justice is a long curve, but it does it does point upwards. And I, I think, um, and the challenge for us is to save the planet, you know, in the next ten years, <laughs> in order to naturally allow that curve time to to keep pointing upwards. 
yeah, that's that's definitely a challenge. But if we can foresee that as being a goal, hopefully that can inspire mm-hmm. us and motivate us, you know, because we can see something positive at the end. Because I think eventually we will, as humankind, come to these conclusions that, you know, we're doing something wrong, that like we can do things better. We should be treating our fellow non-human animals and, and other life forms with respect. And so, yeah, the challenge, I guess, is conserving as many of these life forms so that they can benefit from this change in mentality from us humans down the track. And, yeah, I don't want to destroy hope um, and because I think there is reason for hope. You know? However, I would prefer that we didn't have hope. Hope okay. always comes with this constant companion despair. You know, and it's not a good a good strategy for long term long term marathon mm. hurdles. Interesting, you'll, you'll end up with despair. And so, um, you know, I, I the saying I say is I I have no fear because I have no hope. You know, and so sure we have a plan and a strategy which we believe is ultimately able to be successful. However, we do it as a natural expression of love. So it's a bit like being on a you're you're a fan of a football team and you you give up <laughs> if, if you're on a losing streak. Well, you're not much of a fan. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. You got to say as a, as a you know your football team, you say, look, regardless, we haven't won for you know a couple of years now. I'm sticking with you because I'm so my my personal self is so invested in that team. I don't care if you keep losing. I'm going to keep turning up to the matches and supporting the team. And eventually, that that team will win. If you're a fly-by-night, um, you know, fan, you'll you'll start changing teams halfway. In our case, you probably start owning a palm oil plantation. <laughs> but you know, so this is why again I reflect back to having to reform the ourselves as individuals. Yeah. You know, and so to why do I keep going when things are tough, because I have to. That's just the way it is. But, you know, I have to keep expressing it love in an intelligent way. So I'm not against hope. But I think we've got to be very careful that that in the end, in, in, this, in the cycle, yeah. um, doesn't undermine what we're trying to achieve. Well, I guess, again, back to the balance, we, we need to balance that with other things as well. Like we can't be acting based on 100% hope. Like I have a similar mentality with expectation or mm-hmm. at least expectation from things that are out of my control. Because if you predicate your worth or these other things on things that are out of your control, then you're doomed at some point. Like, yeah. So, yeah, I have a similar mentality with expectation, with hope. But with these things, you need to balance it with, you know, optimism, but practicality, realism, and a whole other range of ingredients as well to, to come up with a recipe that's successful, not only in the short term, but the long term. Never allow your happiness to be dictated by another. Never allow your present happiness to be predicated on future achievements. You know, those are the kind of the, I guess, the traps, I guess. Does that make sense? Which which destroys the individuals. Yeah. So previous question, we were kind of touching on, I guess, the similarities that we have with the great apes and orangutans. But within that great ape family, what are some of the characteristics that distinguish orangutans from the rest of us or from the rest of the great ape family? The, the most striking thing I've found is they're a more n- noble form of person. Okay. Ourselves and, the, um, and our close ancestors, the chimpanzees, were capable of love and compassion, but were capable of such atrocities. 
murder, violence, um, you know, warfare, um, and horrors beyond imagination. And so orangutans don't seem to have that. They don't seem to have that ability to look at another person and want to destroy them. Chimpanzees and us have the capacity of, do, of doing. And this is why, although let's say an orangutan is about seven times stronger than a human being, and the big males have canines the same size of a tiger, although we killed millions of them in the most horrific way possible, burning them alive, macheting them, shooting their eyes out with pellets, um, there's not one recorded history, not one zoo, one sanctuary in the wild that orangutan ever killed a human being. You know, they don't have that off switch that they can just look at another person, you know, and just say, you have no value. I just want to destroy you and make you hurt. And so in another, in, in a way, you know, I've spent um, a wonderful life in, in part that I've got to spend a lot of it with, with these more noble forms of persons, you know, um, we share our planet. And the intelligence part, you, in your book, you mentioned that orangutan intelligence like for me i just naturally assume that i guess chimpanzees were behind humans were the second most intelligent species and i guess that's based on this arrogant point of view that because they share more dna with us that they are therefore more intelligent but you're saying that orangutans are the second what's your rationale yeah, for that yeah. Well, uh, a scientist called Carl Van Schreit went through all the intelligent tests of all um, monkeys and apes. And no surprise to anybody who's worked with all the great apes and most of the monkeys, like myself, orangutans on the top. And the analogy I use is, you know, for the great apes, if you give a screwdriver to a gorilla, it'll scratch himself with it. If you, I won't tell you what a bonobo, those, those hippies of the great apes <laughs> do with it. Either. Those who are listening to that podcast know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, we'll throw the screwdriver another chimpanzee. You give it to an orangutan and it'll escape. And so that's really it. And, and the most wonderful thing when you get to work with orangutans is we have a very high developed prefrontal cortex here, which is basically like a computer simulator. We simulate the, the future, does it make sense? Yes. And with different scenarios. So a chimpanzee is like me with a video recorder. <laughs> you know, they keep on trial and error until the damn thing works, you know. Yeah. Um, but an orangutan is a bit more like my wife. It'll just sit there and review everything and press it one, one button once and it'll work. Yeah. And so you often see the orangutans and they look unintelligent and, and lethargic, but their prefrontal cortex is running these computer simulations. They'll just sit there for a long time and suddenly they just escape. <laughs> or they'll go get something hidden somewhere because what they do is they think a lot and act once. And so, but remember, an orangutan may be a dunce in the classroom, but the genius in the rainforest. Intelligence is always applied to the environment that you've um, definitely you've um, in. So you can take an orangutan and put it in the zoo; it becomes an ugly caricature of a real orangutan. Or you put it in a lab and you test it and go, well, it's pretty dumb, isn't it? Right. But, you know, it's a bit like, um, you know, a um, do you live in a ghetto? Right. What we know from looking at studies of intelligence of, let's say, kids in ghettos, they're geniuses. The geniuses are surviving in the ghetto. You put a, you know, a rich kid from an ivory school and they'll die within days. You know, they just don't have the intelligence to survive. But you conversely, if you put that same kid in university, he's going to fail. You know, because not only there's innate intelligences within each of us and each species, 
that intelligence naturally develops. For example, orangutans like us adapt to the environment through culture. So, so not natural instinct like, let's say, lower animals such as most Yeah, exactly. And so it not only they learn the culture, but the brain develops, that makes sense. It develops the intelligence, yeah, which is required to survive in that unique environment. You know, a kid that lives in the ghetto, you can't understand his intelligence outside of his environment, which he has culturally adapted to. And equally, you can't understand the intelligence of the orangutan outside the environment they're uniquely adapted to. And that then gives us this very jaundiced view and in some cases, a sense of superiority uh, of humans, which is totally unfounded. Yeah, it's almost so their their intelligence. This again raises an issue of a lot of things. Is we have a measurement problem, intelligence, and also things like the success of a society. We currently measure the success on a society or a nation based on GDP, but GDP doesn't factor in other things like kind of happiness of the people and and stuff like that. So that intelligence. We're measuring the intelligence of the, the orangutan based upon the test that we give it. But it seems as though their intelligence is very much predicated. It's like a niche intelligence mm-hmm. that is very fine-tuned to their environment that they're in in that moment. Yeah, and, and we, we see that all the time. We know many tests such as social intelligence and, and remembering high sequences of numbers. Chimpanzees outperform humans consistently. And equally is with orangutans, their temporal spatial map their ability to know where everything in the forest over space and time over multiple years far exceeds in a human being. So they would be in a forest living with humans and going, well, why don't you know every five years at this time that tree fruits? It's so easy to remember, you know. They look at us as, as dancers, you know, because <laughs> they have this highly evolved spatial temporal memory, which is one of the most important things they need to, to survive. We, on the other hand, have a, um, we survive very well by a tribe. And this is why, for example, our need to connect and believe with a tribal narrative outweighs the facts because our tribal unity has been so important to our survival. It's better for you to believe the rubbish that the leader and the tribe believe in than you to be right. Yes. Being right is less of a good survival strategy <laughs> than, than you connecting with the tribe. Equally, as a tribal leader, He's more, he, he needs to make sure that you, you believe the narrative of the tribe. Someone who doesn't is going to be destroyed, even though they're right, because they're affecting the mm-hmm. structure and the integrity of the tribe. This is why whistleblowers, even today, they're exposing um, corruption and illegal behavior in the best interest of the people, and they persecute them. They persecute them in secret courts and that sort of stuff. And the, the people in charge have a vitriol for them. Because yeah. they're affecting, it's a tribal thing, they're affecting the survival of the tribe. Yeah. However, those kind of tribal um, instincts are not productive for an open, large, democratic society anymore. Mm. And, and without evolving, without leaders with some sort of spiritual evolvement beyond, doesn't make sense, our tribal instincts, we're, we're doomed to a tribal mentality which is now dysfunctional. So you take an orangutan out of the rainforest, it becomes dysfunctional. You take a kid out of the ghetto, it becomes dysfunctional. Right? We've got a tribal species with our leaders and our people acting in the tribal nature, but we're out of the tribal environment, and therefore we become dysfunctional. And the expression of the dysfunction is with destroying the environment which supports us. 
And so we have to evolve. We have to evolve to adapt to the, the new environment, you know. And unfortunately, there's some powerful dinosaurs you know, <laughs> who are trying to hold back that evolution um, that we need. Unfortunately, yeah, these rich, powerful dinosaurs that yeah have a lot of influence over people and and positions of power. Um, but yeah, hopefully, this evolution reaches a point where yeah, I guess we can tip the scales in the other direction. So you you're a zoo or you were a zookeeper. Um, I think in the 1980s you started working at the the Perth Zoo and you worked there for a number of years. But now you're no longer in the zoo. So this question is probably quite a good one for you. From a conservation and animal rights perspective, what is your stance on zoos today, and how do you hope they evolve in the future? Yeah, certainly for like um, persons such as elephants and orangutans, all the great apes, zoos are not places where they can survive. They can't survive genetically because all the population is unsustainable. You know, so there's no conservation value and there's a huge welfare problem with keeping persons in captivity. No matter how well you look after, you can keep persons in, in refugee camps and look after them very well, but we know psychologically they get destroyed because persons need to be able to, you know, live in their own societies, you know, control their future and control who and when they associate with in order to function happily doesn't make sense and successfully and have have mental health zoos are not appropriate place am i against all zoos i mean the example i give if i was giraffe right and living in open range zoo in my herd you know being fed all the time getting first class veterinary care and you know i'm not very bright just as long as i got my herd and my foods and i'm not sick you know i'm going to be pretty damn happy you know um, and you said to me, look, I've got this idea. I'm going to take you back to the African savannah where you have to go and survive in a Serengeti and there's going to be hyenas hunting you at night and that sort of stuff. I'll probably go, ah, <laughs> look, that, that kind of stuff is not really for me. Just keep, I'll, I'll stay in my zoo. So, again, it's one of those, you know, extremes are never the, the answer to anything. You know? Definitely. Are, are zoos at the moment good? Predominantly, no. Is there a future where... Some animals which do well yeah, and are happy in zoos in the appropriate enclosures and environment, you know, can't share our cities. And we can, as, as children, and say, connect with them, you know, and get a wonderful experience. Yes, uh, you know, um, both are possible. But zoos have to evolve. The CEOs believe, oh, my God, my zoo will collapse if we don't have elephants, you know. The zoo will collapse unless, you know, I have these postage stamp collections of animals. You know, there's great places where you can go see animals who are living in a natural ecosystem, natural environment that makes sense and prospering both mentally and physically. And the interaction with the people is totally appropriate. But they have to kind of unfortunately make that, you know, the evolutionary leaps. Um, and what happens is it was two things is we have a, I could have had my sense of self-worth as a zookeeper. And then I would spend all my life defending zookeeping, you know. And, and zoos, because you, if you attack that, who am I? I must be a bad person. Am I, you know, my life? But if you, if you have that evolution, two things happen. Is you can say, actually, no, some of the things I've done in the past aren't necessarily great. I've learned. I've learned from my experience. I've gone beyond it. And that's why we shouldn't really never criticize people for what they did in the past, because you hold them back in defending a behavior that they will naturally grow out of. You know what I mean? And, and as their understanding and love and compassion grows, those things will naturally, naturally fall off. And that's part of the evolution. So even in conservation, you may have a conservation who started on a particular vein, 
and this, and then get to the conclusion, oh my God, that's probably not very effective. But it's invested in that. They'll stay there long beyond its capacity to, to really do good. Similarly, you know, the Industrial Revolution has created plenty of opportunities, you know, and, and made the world a better place. But you have people vested in, you know, the power sources and the power structures which allow the evolution and their sense of self-worth and power is linked to that. And they haven't got the ability, you know, the young entrepreneurs, you know, you see them, they just, they're going, I'm not invested in that. You know, I can see the future. I can see a better way. But, and so this is why as individuals, I always fall short of criticizing them. If you keep criticizing them, they become more entrenched, holding on all paradigm from which their egos are set. You've got to allow them the freedom and provide the love, even to the people you disagree with, to allow them to, to move beyond it. And I'd even go, like, so you, you said that, um, that you don't criticize people on their past. Like, I'd also say that we shouldn't really be criticizing people on what they do now. The focus should be communicating with these people to figure out how we could progress from there. Because people, there's obviously there's ways to criticize people, but most people don't really respond quite well to it, to be honest. So, so if your objective is to progress and to you know, evolve to a place that is better than what it is currently. Yeah, there, we need to approach it from a probably a, a more empathetic and compassionate angle. Yeah, if you can understand, if you were born with the same brain in the same environment as the person you're in conflict with, you would be acting the same the way. Same way. Yep. And I so believe in that. Where is the arrogance of of you being better and looking down at them? And if they're acting inappropriately and they're acting with malice, they're acting from a, a place to hurt, from within themselves. Happy people cannot hurt people. You can't have a happy terrorist. Happy, mm-hmm. you, know, you can't conceive of hurting others if you're happy. You know? And so our attitude for them is, one, a lack of arrogance of superiority, yeah. and two, compassion. That person's hurting. Yeah. You know? And attacking a hurting person doesn't make sense. It's like if a dog's in the street, he's been run over by a car, and you try to hurt and saying bite you, then the appropriate response is not to kick the dog because it's trying to bite you. <laughs> the appropriate response is to understand that dog is in pain and do whatever you can within the safety, doesn't make sense, within the safety not getting bitten, to help that poor creature. Yeah. And people destroying the planet and hate others are exactly the same as that poor dog in the street. Yeah. I believe in that. Okay, so we're nearing the end. Um, how can people connect with you and learn more about the work that you do? Well, we, we, have, we have projects for the orangutans, elephants, and tigers, um, and you can connect with all of those. But if you go to theorangutanproject.org on the website, uh, um, you can connect with us and see how you can help, how you can join a collectivization to make meaningful changes in the world. And, um, of course, I do echo tours in the wild and i regularly go to cities in australia new york and london doing tours um talks and and books um and you can buy my books and therefore yeah and 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 connect that way um and join collectively in a way that will make a meaningful change in the world and um that that way empowers all of us no matter what our skills are whether our skills is that we have a little bit of spare money we can contribute or become a volunteer or, or work in the field, that all those unique um, abilities and capacity all can join into making a meaningful change, not only for the orangutans, but for the whole planet. 
and I'll put all this information down below. And just to throw it out there, I'm currently, so you're finding our humanity, um, which you published last year. I'm currently in the process of reading that and I find it very interesting because it's takes on that a very kind of philosophical angle, which is something that I really enjoy. I kind of really enjoy diving deep into these um, ideas. So I highly recommend that one. So for the final part, what message or question do you want to leave the conservation tribe? The message is, um, from, from my point of view, collectivize with a good organization in, in according to your capacity and, and assets to make a meaningful change and start a journey within yourself to find that love and compassion um, within you. And, not, and that's a wonderful thing. If you find that you become joyous and happy and then you will make the world happy and become more effective in, in making the world more happy. So beginning with the simple idea of changing yourself and then beautiful complexity can, can arise from that. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again, and I will see you in the next episode.